You're listening to The Perth Property Show, Australia's only weekly property podcast by West Australian experts for West Australian listeners. Catch your latest episode every Monday at 7am. Good morning, everyone. Welcome to The Perth Property Show. My name's Trent Fleskins, your host, as always. And I just wanted to say a big thank you to everyone listening along. We've hit some massive records on listenership recently, and I guess a lot of that's got to do with the market, but I'm sure a lot more of it's got to do with all that great word of mouth of everyone suggesting a listen along on a week-to-week basis. Guys, we're in May 2021, getting very close to end of year, so we're going to start talking tax again, those sort of topics that get important to us as we get into winter. But for now, the pile of questions on our website link have been piling up, to be honest. So thought we'd get through those this week before we head into a conversation with some more serious things about SAT and Jada with Bianca Sandry next week. So it's just me this week and we'll get through some of those most interesting and pertinent questions I think that cover off most of those that have come through. So I will start off with Jason, whose question is, I signed a quote with a builder in September to get the grants. And now that we are about to start building, they've come back to us with a $20,000 price increase. Can they do that? Is that normal? Is it happening elsewhere? Jace, uh, I'm not sure if you've heard us talking on the podcast recently, and it's definitely normal. It's a reflection of all the trade price increases that the builders themselves are going to have to pay when building their home. So they're seeing, they're getting all their quotes right now, they're getting close to to, uh, getting the slab down, and they're realizing that what they quoted you back in September doesn't now reflect the prices they're going to have to pay their tradies to get the job done. So if they were to move ahead with the same quote that they signed in September, with you and uh, then uh, push it through, they might not make any money, they may lose money. So we don't want our builders losing money uh, and that's why they pass this increase on. It's unfortunate, it really does frustrate a lot of builders as well because they have to have these conversations as much as frustrating us as clients. So the only winners out of this right now are the tradies and hope they're making the most of this time. It does go up and down in the market and it's important to make sure we've got good tradies out there. So can they do that? Yes, they can. Is it normal? $20,000, look, if it's a $200,000 build, it's a 10% increase. We've at least seen that in the price of trade across the board, really, since last September. So yes, it very much is a normal number. If it's a $700,000 build and it's a $20,000 increase, well then, I count yourself lucky. I would suggest that the actual cost increase to the builder is more like Seventy to a hundred thousand dollars at a seven hundred thousand dollar price point, and if they're not passing all of that on, and they're absorbing that and only giving you a twenty thousand dollar increase, well, you know it's probably a, a pretty fantastic outcome for yourself. So twenty thousand dollars to cop it on the chin, get the build done, get moving. The market is moving. You probably made that back in the market already without knowing your property. The only thing I would say is just make sure that price increase has come as a result of you not meeting the finance timeframes that you've agreed to in your build contract. If you've already signed it and I'm sure you have already signed it because you would have wanted to have that lodged with the Office of State Revenue before the 31st of December last year. So if that was the case, you signed it before December last year and you've just come to a point where they're ready to build now, well then I would say it's most likely and possible that they're able to pass those increases on if you haven't had finance approval back in what I would say is March. Okay, Jace, thanks for the question. Next question comes from Stacey. Stacey's asked, I've heard fixed rates are going up soon. Should I lock my home loan in now? What's the best rate I can be getting? Stacey, fixed rates are going to be going up soon. And the reason for that is that uh, last year, the RBA provided $200 billion in emergency funding to all the banks to go and essentially push out to us as consumers in the industry. And they gave that money at 0.1% cost to the bank. Normally, banks' funding costs 
are at about 0.04%, which is a, a bond, a forward bond rate, plus a 25% buffer, which we 0.29%. So up until uh, recently, for the last few months, we've been able to get loans, fixed rates that are costing the bank about 0.1%. After July 1, they'll be costing them 0.29%. And that means that they'll pass those increased costs to them onto us, which means fixed rates will be going up in the new financial year. So if you are thinking of locking a home loan in, you've got essentially you've got six weeks before you see those definitely going up. And I would have thought a lot of the banks are starting to think about increasing their home loan fixed rates very, very soon if they haven't already. And some have already. You need to pull that back though as to is that a good decision for you fundamentally at fixed rate. Now, if you're looking to stay in your home or not essentially not sell your home or your investment property for the period of the fixed rate, then sure, there are essentially really good benefits there. You're getting the cheapest rate you'll probably ever get in your life at the moment. And you can lock that in for two, three, four, possibly even five years, and it will be cheaper, especially at the back end, uh, than what the going rate will be at the time. Now, variable rates as well, even in this market right now, they're about half percent higher than fixed rates. So if you're on a variable rate and you wanted to fix that now, you probably save half percent, which is obviously fantastic for your disposable income along the way. But really, the benefit of it is locking in that budget so that if you're buying something or you've got something and you like to make sure that you can budget that for the next three to four years, if those are the, the terms you're looking to agree on, uh, that you can at least know that it's not going up because generally the cost to the bank will be going up over the next few years. So the only reason you would stay on variable in my opinion right now is if you want access to an offset account for your own purposes or you are thinking of selling in the next year or so and don't want to pay an economic cost a break fee essentially which is what the banks can charge you if you pull out of a fixed rate before the end of the term due to selling for example so i hope that's answered your question stacy jonathan's asked i see a recent article from rewa stating the top 20 growth suburbs since december 2020 it shows some suburbs have grown up to 20 percent is this true? Why do these lists always have different suburbs in them and how do I trust the info is correct? Uh, yes, this list came out a couple of weeks ago from Rewa and had the number one uh, growing suburb over the last few months since December being Bigton at 20% and then there are a number of suburbs down the list uh, in the top 20 down to about 10% in growth. This is true, essentially. Uh, we've seen across the board since probably more like September, a good 20 to 25% in a number of suburbs, in my opinion. Uh, and that's just looking at like-for-like -like properties, especially in the owner-occupied and development block space. Not so much in the apartment space, not so much in the unit, unit space. If they have grown, they've grown up to maybe 5%, certainly not 10%. And again, that is a suburb-by-suburb -suburb basis. And I always say the smart money moves first. So generally, the best suburbs will grow first. They'll also drop first in a lot of cases because they can see the market a little bit more fluently than other people. So in this very early stage in our growth cycle, the top suburbs of, you know, with the best growth and the best owner-occupied fundamentals, school zones, close to water, close to the sea, those sort of things, they've seen the growth and Bicton has, by the raw data right now, come up on top. And the reason that these lists always change is because a lot of entities are using different data. So Rewa will use different data to core logic, we use different data to domain. They're all essentially grabbing data from different data houses and therefore the data will be slightly different. Additionally, the timing will always have factors. So this is only looking at a period of about four to five months. That's a really small period, which will have a fairly small data set. And you can understand that for Bicton, let's say it's a 20% growth. If you know September, October, November, December, a lot of the properties in Bicton that were selling were closer to the highway and of lesser value generally. And then over the last four months, January, February, March, April, we've seen 
a lot of the properties that are selling actually closer to the water, well then, without even growth in the market, you would just see that the data set would show a 20% increase in prices because that's really what the value difference would be between close to the highway and close to the water. Now, that's not to say that's the case. I do believe there have been, has been fundamental growth in Picton along with a lot of the suburbs, generally most of the suburbs in Perth. Uh, however, it's really important to understand that that's one of the reasons why you'll see a lot of dirty data, I like to call it, because it's very much a headline data point and it doesn't reflect what's selling within those suburbs because there are so many different types of properties. It's why you'll see a suburb like Trigg, for example, demonstrate having had 50% growth over the last six years when really, fundamentally, like for like, it hasn't had that sort of growth at all. It's more likely that the last couple of years people have been selling much more expensive properties compared to a few years before selling the cheaper properties in that suburb. So I hope that makes sense. So you can trust the information generally, but I wouldn't be saying that if my suburb's grown by 20%, then my house has grown by 20%, I would definitely be going and getting a few appraisals from real estate agents and speaking to your mortgage broker to maybe get a free valuation out of a valuation company. Thanks a lot, Johnny. The next question comes from Emma. Emma's asked, I've found a site in Maddington that could be developed into 15 townhouses. What do I need to do to get this going and get this started? Emma, this is a massive undertaking. A development of 15 townhouses would be a multi-million dollar development for starters. So first off, you'd either need the cash to do that or you'd need to be able to get really serious bank funding of probably sitting at 55, 60% LVR, which would mean you would have to still come up with many millions of dollars to be able to fund this. If you haven't got experience in this space as well, I would suggest that a 15 townhouse development is a massive project for anyone, even someone who's done quite a few projects along the way. Maddington also wouldn't be the sort of area I'd be putting all my eggs into that basket even if the cash was available to do it. So I would suggest that before you're going and jumping in to buy this property based on based on the pure metrics that a real estate agent might be showing you, some sort of survey with a subdivision design, recognize that this will cost you millions of dollars to develop. Even as a land development, it would cost you hundreds of thousands of dollars. Maddington is not a fantastic place to be investing in. So when you're doing a development, you want to not only be doing it in a way that's making you money on the development, but also has really good risk mitigation fundamentals in terms of the, the area itself. And that wouldn't be a place for me being Maddington. My advice would be cut it down. If you've got the money, I'd still rather be doing three or four townhouses than 15, and I would definitely be doing it in an area close to really good school zones, the water and the city. Thanks a lot for that, Emma. Next question comes from Deepak. Deepak's asked, if you had $700,000 to buy a house cash, Trent, where would you buy and why? That's a really good question, Deepak. I wish I'd give myself a little bit more time to think about this, but I would have to hark back to at the start of the year, I gave my top 10 tips for where I see growth coming in this year. And number one was the suburb of Riverton. And the reason for that is it's been recently rezoned, putting a lot of investment pressure on there. It's in the best school zone in Perth, being Rossmore Senior High School. It's close to the water and it's close enough to the city. And it's still relatively quite a cheap suburb compared to Rossmore and Shelley down the road. So for $700,000 in cash to go and buy a house for whatever purpose it was, those are the reasons. And that is the place. It will be Riverton. I'll be definitely be looking there. I'll be getting as close into the middle of the suburb as possible and making sure that I'm in the Rossmoyne catchment of that suburb because there are some streets that are not. Thanks, Deepak. Next question comes from Daniel. Daniel asks, I recently had my property valued $200,000 above what I paid for it. Can I use that equity to buy an investment property? 
Daniel, short answer is yes, you can. The way that it would work is, I'll give you an example. If you bought the property for $500,000, you probably had a mortgage of $400,000. If it's now worth $700,000, you could get a maximum mortgage of $560,000 without paying lender's mortgage insurance. So without going above 80%. That difference between 560 and 400 is the equity you can use either through a cross securitization or through a cash out with your bank to use as the deposit for the purchase and the stamp duty. That would allow you a purchase of probably somewhere in the 600,000s, being 120,000 is the 20% plus about $30,000 in stamp duty and associated costs. That would, you've got the money there, the cash there to make that purchase. So with that increase in value, you can probably go and buy a $600,000 property. Now, the next part of that is though, you need to make sure you got the serviceability. So we've just demonstrated your ability to have the cash for it, the loan to value ratio deposit, but the serviceability also needs to be there. If you've got a few properties, you're on a salary, which is fairly constant and your debt has increased, you might find that you could be capping yourself out. If you're not, then certainly go for it. You can buy that property based on also having proposed rent coming from that purchase as an investment and make the most of that in this time. A lot of people will be doing that right now. Just make sure you're not overdoing it in terms of going right up to the hilt on book value because if the market does swing the other way at some point, you might find you're very close to 100% LVR in that situation, which will make it really hard for you to sell or refinance. So if you're going to do that, try not to cross securitize. Try to cash that money out in its, as an individual cash out. Next question comes from Diana. Diana's asked, are there any areas in Perth you wouldn't invest in and why? That's a tough one to answer because everyone has needs to have somewhere to live uh, and everyone loves the area generally that they are living in. So it's certainly not going to be a personal answer uh, that I give. It would certainly be a investment financial answer, which is what you asked, Diana. Generally, the easiest way to put this for starters is if you wouldn't want to live there, then I wouldn't invest there. That's a really arbitrary way of putting it. Everyone needs to live somewhere and generally people are happy where they live and where they come from. But I would nut it down to the four fundamentals again in terms of being above average, which is which is what you always want to be doing when you're investing. So if you're above average, you want to be in those blue chip areas where you are, one, inside one of the top five school zones. Generally, that top five looks like Bob Hawke, Ross Moyne, Willerton, Mount Lawley, and Churchlands, possibly Apple Cross as well. If you're, if you're in one of those uh, state school intake zones, you're doing really well. You want to be close to the water, which is the river or the ocean. You want to be close to the city and you want to be close to an activity center. Now, the reason the Western suburbs do really well is because they generally tick every one of those boxes. If you're not in the Western suburbs and you're not affording that sort of price point, you want to be in those catchments. So uh, around any of those school zones and close to an activity center, you can, you can think about those off the top of your head and realize that there are suburbs that do really tick most of those boxes. And that's, for example, why I'm a big fan of Riverton in 2021. In terms of the, the suburbs that you wouldn't invest in, it's obviously ones that don't tick any of those boxes at all. So if you're ticking a few of those boxes, that's not bad at all, especially for what you can afford. But if you tick none of those boxes, uh, really, for me, it doesn't demonstrate any reason why you'd be buying there. And those suburbs would essentially be most suburbs in the city of Gosnells, all suburbs in the city of Armidale, and generally any areas around Quinana, Wellard, Aurelia, Leda, um, Palmelia, those areas struggle quite a lot as well. And then on top of that, it would obviously be any of the house and land suburbs. So anywhere where it's still display homes and vacant land out there demonstrates an oversupply of land and therefore will be an oversupply of similar product to what you would be living in. So any of those suburbs like Alcamos, Ellenbrook, Averley, Hilbert, Hillman, Baldivis, Byford, any of those suburbs would not be areas that I would be investing in for investment purposes. Not to say they're not great places to live, 
but in terms of for investment of demand and supply, those will be the suburbs that I would definitely not be investing in for those purposes. Final question and best one I think we've left till last is from Andrew. Andrew writes, I've heard a new Arco document is coming out soon, making us put more trees in and having less setbacks and boundary walls on our developments in the city of Joondalup. Is this going to kill triplex developments in the city? Awesome question, Andrew, and great one to finish on. It is something that's fairly pertinent. It's come in recently in March. The council put a resolution through to, to yeah, essentially limit boundary walls, increase setbacks, and increase the amount of trees we're putting in. My comments on that is uh, it's a bit of a sledgehammer to a lot of people who have bought properties with the purpose of developing in the city of Joondalup. And unless you're going to move to two-story developments, for a lot of these blocks that are around 700 square meters or less in the city, it makes it nearly impossible to, whilst it is zoned R40, for example, as a triplex, to actually get a triplex development done of three three by twos on a single story configuration. So yeah, you're right, Andrew, this is something that there's a lot of change and flux coming in right now within with the cities, also with the median density code coming in some point at the end of the year or early next year uh, and it's going to price a lot of people in terms of mum and dad developers out of the market because they're going to be forced to do townhouses from now on throughout most of Perth so it's going to create an, I guess a changing of the guard we'll no longer see that many single story three by twos anymore in terms of the infill development they will mostly be townhouses that we push to look something like the way that uh, June Danner and Maylands have been pushing over the years and the reason that they've been townhouses for so long is because the price points have allowed for it this is going to push those suburbs into that space as well in that no development will occur unless the market can accept and pay for townhouses in those suburbs so for me some of those areas like Belden, Heathridge, Craigie that are just getting off the ground with triplex development recently uh, I think they're going to struggle to be able to see too many more infill developments come through unless the price point goes over and above what is quite an expensive cost to do a townhouse development these days. One of those topics that are a bit of a wait and see, Andrew, and we'll definitely keep you updated throughout the year as to how things are moving in that space. Guys, thanks a lot for listening. Bit of a short episode this week. Next week, as I said, we'll have Bianca Sandry in from Urbanista talking about SAT and JDAP and that whole process, and hopefully you'll get some value from that too. Catch you next week. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Perth Property Show. If you've only just joined the conversation, you can catch up by heading over to our website, perthpropertyshow.com.au, subscribing to the podcast or joining our Facebook page. Don't forget to tune in next Monday at 7am for more expert insights, local analysis and suburb spotlights. Happy hunting!